I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Julie Oringer on Joshua Hankins' Morningside Heights. In the sheer pleasure of reading this novel, of inhabiting its detail-perfect settings, its relentlessly accurate portrayals of marriagehood and parenthood and siblinghood, we can almost forget that its subject is one of the most painful imaginable, the loss of a self, of a marriage, of a shared life. But the real magic is how it reminds us that ordinary people undertake extraordinary acts of survival every day. Joshua Hankin is the author of Swimming Across the Hudson, Matrimony, and the World Without You. He lives in Brooklyn, and he directs the MFA program in fiction writing at Brooklyn College. And he's my guest on The Literary Life. Joshua, I want to welcome you to The Literary Life and congratulate you on the fact that today is pub day for your brand new novel, Morningside Heights. It's so interesting, and I, I want to kind of get your sense of it. The novel was supposed to come out a year ago, right? And the pandemic pushed it forward. Tell me what that was like. I'm, I'm really happy to be here with you, Mitch. Um, I, I see it as a, as a real gift um, that, um, I mean, for any number of reasons. Um, first, I like the most practical level. You know, last June, when the book was supposed to come out, it was, um, I mean, the pandemic had just started. I just think the publishing world didn't know how to publish uh, a book successfully uh, under those circumstances. Just to have an extra year, even though we're not fully out of the pandemic, to have that extra year was a gift. And as, as, as I've told you, I mean, it also gave me a chance to get to know a lot of independent booksellers this past year, which I feel is just, you know, such a pleasure. Um, but then also I feel as a writer, it, um, it helped me a lot because I'm always telling my students, whatever I tell my students, I feel I have to abide by myself. And so I'm always telling my students that, you know, when your book comes out, it's important to be on to the next project. 
because, you know, I, mean, I love the writing process and the actual publication process, although I'm grateful for what that brings, it's very nerve wracking. You're, you know, you're, you're waiting to see the reviews and it's totally random. And, you know, I've been very fortunate, but you always think your luck is going to run out. And I'm a bit of a control freak, and at least when I'm writing, I don't know that I'm gonna get it right, but I know that I can, in theory, get it right. Whereas when it's out in the world, you have no idea. So it's good to have an extra, to be onto your new project. So you can say, ah, that book that just came out, now that's old stuff. My new stuff, that's what this, that's what's really, that's what's really great. So, but I'm never able to do that because just the way the publication process works, that you finish the book and you hand it into your editor and you do copy editing and you do you go through production and then you have to do publicity and you don't have time to write a new book. But because I was all prepared for the book to come out last June and then it didn't, and I was on leave from teaching in the fall, I basically kind of got a freebie. I got this year to work on a new book and I got most of a draft of a new book done. I mean, it, you know, it's horrible. I mean, it's a lot of work, but you know, it has to be horrible before it's good. So that was the real gift that the Dole gave me in addition to the other gifts. Well, yeah, no, that's a really good gift, but I am, I'm afraid that you're not going to enjoy the ability to have the solitude to be writing this new book because Morningside Heights is being published to such a claim that the success of it is not going to let you, not going to leave you alone for a while, I don't think. Well, I, I, I'm tempted to say from your mouth, to readers' ears, because of course that's what we all want. Although I also am tempted to say, "Be careful what you wish for." So I guess what I'll say is, I hope you're right, um, and I hope it proves to be a distraction, but that ultimately people will move on to other things, and that will be good for me, and I will move on to my new project. Yeah. Really, it's really about the work. You know, we're first introduced to Prue, really, uh, and it's told through her memory and 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 basically through her voice what was that like you know kind of channeling a woman's point of view particularly a woman who you know grew up at a particular time and that sort of thing yeah and it's funny because i mean i guess you could argue that prue is i mean prue's the main character she's the we are in many points of view we're probably in her point of view more than any other character in my last novel the world without you there are a lot of female points of view. I often write in a female point of view. I don't find that any more or less challenging than anything. I mean, I think it's all really challenging. I think, you know, you have to get the characters right. It takes years and years and years to do that. But it's not like, I've, like I'm a 57-year-old Jewish guy. I don't automatically think that, like, writing from the perspective of a 57-year-old Jewish guy is easier or harder than writing from a different perspective. I mean, I think that, you know, fiction is really about imagining yourself in someone else's shoes. And I guess I even might argue that it may be easier to write from close to the heart if you're writing from someone's point of view who is superficially different from you. It just can be freeing in a certain way that you don't have to worry like, oh, people will think this is me because I'm obviously not Prue, but maybe I am Prue in a certain way. And that kind of gives me a cover. So I didn't, I didn't, I mean, I think there were challenges about each of the characters, but I didn't find age and gender 
or you know, growing up in the Midwest as she does, whereas I grew up on the East Coast, that to me felt no different from any other challenge. Was there one character that was a bit more difficult than another character to sort of inhabit? So Arlo, who's the, just you know, to tell your listeners, who's the son from a previous marriage, that brief marriage that Spence had before he met Prue, and Arlo grows up largely with his kind of, you know, ne'er-do-well, uh, hippie-ish mother and sort of shows up sporadically. Um, so Arlo came, at some point, maybe three years into the writing, I said to myself, well, maybe, maybe Spence had a previous marriage and maybe he had a son. And I thought, nah. But I thought, okay, let me try it. And as soon as I tried it, the book just totally opened up. So in some ways, Arlo was the easiest character, which is interesting because he's the, in some ways, the least familiar to me. Like I, Spence is very much like my father and I succeeded for better or worse by the standards that my father judged the world by. Whereas, you know, Arlo did not. And I sometimes think that Arlo might be my kind of fantasy of what I wished I had rebelled as. But in any case, for whatever reason, Arlo, came really easily to me in terms of the, certainly Arlo's childhood, certainly the writing. But in a different way, Arlo was the hardest character because how do you make a character who's really important, be important, but also be absent physically for so much of the book? And there's a kind of, you know, disjuncture and a disproportion between how important Arlo is in terms, I think, I think, you know, second to prove Maybe even he competes with Prue as the most important character in the book. I'm really interested in Arlo because he's so different from everyone else. Um, so he's so important and yet he's just not there for large chunks of time. So structurally, figuring out the structure of the book was so, I learned a lot from Alice Monroe. I mean, there's so much to learn from Alice Monroe, but you know, Alice Monroe proves that structure is beautiful. It's not just simply like, oh, structure, I got to deal with structure. It's like when you tell things, how you tell things, how you order things, there's a real beauty to that. And so Arlo is both the easiest in some ways in terms of voice and the hardest in terms of structuring the book. I would say in terms of another character who is hard. So Spence has an older sister who was brain damaged in an accident um, when she was a teenager um, and she lives in um, a home. Um, and she's not in the book a lot, but I think she's important, really important for getting a window into a kind of vulnerability that Spence has that may be hard to access otherwise. His sister's name is Enid. And so his relationship with Enid, I feel is important. And I thought it's high, I just didn't have a lot of brushstrokes with which to paint her because she's not in the book a lot. And I didn't want her to be an object of either humor or derision just because it's easy because you know she's she's mentally compromised to turn her into a caricature i just felt like she was an important character and i needed to, needed to get her right so you have to get every character right you know michael cunningham talks about how you have to look at there's my phone in the background you have to look at the the most minor character in your novel as a major character from another novel who's making a cameo appearance in your novel um, and so every, you have to get every character right. But I felt that with Enid, she was more important than her allotted pages would have suggested. She was more important than the real estate that she occupied 
And so in that sense, she was tough. Well, and what you did with Enid is, you know, her importance is, is um, very clear by the time you get to the end of the novel, right? It, you know, he, it, she allows us to have a glimpse into Spence in a way that we didn't really understand him before. But I can tell you, and I wonder how you feel about this, with Arlo's absence, I mean, what you were able to achieve in the way you structured it is Arlo's absence created a certain kind of propulsion to the novel because we wanted to know what his story was. So he would make an appearance and it would further his story, but then he was such an intriguing character that I found myself turning pages, really wanting to know about Prue and Spence and Sarah, but in the back of my mind, I was going, boy, I hope I bump into Arlo here somewhere. He is not in contact with Prue and Spence and Sarah for X number of years over the course of the, you know, time and span of the novel. He, he, could be, he could be absent for those periods of time, but not absent from the book. In other words, I could have divided and conquered in earlier versions of the book. We w- there was much more toggling back and forth in time, and lot, lots of short chapters. And I was asked to, to blurb Joan Silver's novel, Improvement, at a time that I was really struggling with the book. I need to tell Joan this because she's a friend and former colleague and I, I've never had a chance to tell her, but there is something about reading the book Improvement. And I can't even remember what it was, but there was something about the structure of that book that made me figure out how to structure this book so that he was actually absent structurally in the right. I mean, he was always absent for the same years, but his actual absence in terms of the telling of when the book is told, that was something I figured out only after I, I read Joan's book. So I have a real gratitude, debt of gratitude to her. Well, then we as readers thank Joan too. We dove in to the particulars of the book. Um, instead of me trying to uh, summarize it, how would you describe the book? What would you describe it in a few short sentences? Yeah. Um, it's both a great question and a question that I resist. You know, I mean, Martin Amos in his uh, novel, The Information, which was, you know, a, a, basically a spoof of writers and book tours and things like that. And I'm, I read it a long time ago, so I, I, um, I'm going to get this wrong. But, you know, the main character is uh, has suddenly become very successful in a kind of like freakish, unusual way. Um, and he's on a radio show and he's interviewed by someone who's much less smart than you and who clearly hasn't read the book. And so... The interviewer says, so, I don't know what the guy's name is, so, Bob, you know, tell us what your book's about. And he said, the book's, book's not about anything. It just, it is what it is, all 200,000 words of it. Uh, if I could have written in a fewer, I would have. So that, my instinct is to give that answer, which I feel is both obnoxious and true. Um, so, but I'll start with that instinct, but I'll try to give you an answer. But I, I, I think it was Franzen who said that the easier it is to summarize a novel, the worse the book is. And I do think that that's true. So with all that cav- those caveats, I'll play along and say that I, I, think it's, I think the book is fundamentally about a long marriage um, and about um, what happens to that long marriage when things don't turn out exactly as you anticipate. And in that sense, it's, it's a novel, although it's a novel about a specific marriage, it is something that is true of every marriage. Because in one to one degree or another, no marriage ends up exactly as 
you anticipate and no life ends up exactly as you anticipate. And so what it is, is it's about how a family and colleagues and friends respond to a medical tragedy, uh, which is that Spence gets early Alzheimer's. But I guess I would also say that it, it feels, you know, as much as, you know, the snippet description is, oh, it's about Alzheimer's, I kind of feel like it's not. I mean, yes, it is about Alzheimer's and the story and the novel attends to that in a way that I, I hope is accurate and respectful. Um, and that's very important to me. But it was also really important to me not to tell the book from the point of view of Spence as he's declining. There are times that we're in Spence's point of view, but it's not when he's declining. I was not interested. I'm not saying that doing this is a bad thing, but I was not interested in writing about what it's like for someone with dementia to have dementia. I was really much more interested in what it's like for the people around the character who has dementia to experience that. Because in a weird way, one of the challenges of this book is that, you know, unfortunately, medically speaking, as long as you're not writing a speculative book, and I wasn't writing a speculative book, you kind of know what's going to happen medically. I mean, you, the decline is inevitable. And as I tell my grad students, you don't want to write a story that's fundamentally about a ball being rolled down the hill because you know what happens when a, roll, a ball rolls down the hill. Gravity takes it where it takes it. And, you know, Flannery O'Connor talks about an ending to a story being surprising but inevitable, a good ending to a story. And I think that's true. You want it, you didn't expect it, but when you get there, it has to be, you feel like it has to be exactly right. And I think most bad endings are simply surprising, namely implausible, are simply inevitable, namely predictable. And so there is something about focusing on the disease course that's not interesting because it is simply predictable. But what, it, what was interesting to me is writing about the choices that people who don't have dementia make in response to Spence's dementia. So I actually see Spence as kind of the engine of the book, but the real meat of the book, and now I'm mixing metaphors, are Prue and Arlo and Walter and Ginny, that Ginny's the caregiver. I mean, all the other characters who don't have dementia. So I kind of see it as like a, a family slash marriage novel where the, the, ins, the instigating event is uh, the early dementia, but that's not what the book is about for me. You know, I am really glad I asked that question, even though I was, um even though I was chided uh, and compared to the character in Martin Amos's information. <laughs> However, uh, taking that risk, I think you gave an answer, which was an answer that I think is clarifying for anyone who's thinking of this book, because I would not, as a bookseller, hand this to someone and say, here, you got to read this because it's an amazing story of a guy dealing with Alzheimer's. Instead, I look at it as I look at those amazing, wonderful novels that have always sort of appealed to me, which are stories of a life, stories of a marriage, you know, inhabiting something in which you have a catharsis. A good novel is about weather and meals. You have to choose the right weather and the right meals. Um, I think another example, I mean, I think, you know, Yates' Revolutionary Road, um, yeah. one, of the, one of the great novels about, you know, a long marriage. And um, I am, I guess I kind of, kind of am interested in writing about characters 
or in things, whatever those things are, whether it's marriage or something else, or in things for the long haul. Um, and I believe strongly in fiction and in life that the small moments are what are most revealing. Like there's a scene in the book where um, where Spence is, you know, where Spence is basically diagnosed with dementia. It's an, right. it's an awful scene in the sense that because I went through it with my dad, and it's awful. Um, and I think it was an important scene for a number of reasons. And but at least as close to my heart is a scene when Spence is in his early decline where he tries, there's a, a mouse in the house, in the apartment, and Prue wants to do this sensible thing, which is to buy a mouse trap and to catch the mouse. And that's what Spence would have done when he was more lucid. But Spence wants to catch it with his own two hands and he feels affronted by being asked to, you know, and he feels that that Prue is doubting him, doubting his ability. And of course, this is, I guess, there's a subtext there because he's supposed to write this book and, you know, he's this big Shakespeare scholar, he can't write this book. But that's kind of transferred onto his ability to catch a mouse, which is something that would never would have been important to him. Like that scene of his trying to catch the mouse is at least as important to me as the scene at the social worker's office where he's given the mini mental exam and isn't able to name who the president of the United States is. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to choose between them, but I'm just saying that to me, that's what I think Salter means. Life is weather, life is life. I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the scene, there were, there were two scenes along those lines, which, you know, were really so poignant for me. One was when he misread the invitation to the New Year's Eve party, right? And they go dressed you know, in tuxedos, but they were supposed to be in costume. And he started questioning, you know, he, he was aware that he had made a mistake. It was very early on. But the really heartbreaking scene where you really are, you really understand that there's no turning back is when she writes the check back to his agent for $65,000 and basically pays back the advance for the book that he couldn't he can't write. Even though she was going to help him write it, he still can't do it. I mean, it's obviously heartbreaking for Spence and for someone whose brain is such as so much what his identity is to not be able to write that book. It's obviously awful. I'm going to read just the opening, you know, basically a page from when Arlo is introduced. Um, this comes, you know, 50 pages into the book and um, Spence has just been diagnosed with dementia and Arlo, who's been sort of out of touch for a long time. Um, and Prue says to Sarah, their daughter, says we have to get in touch with Arlo. And the previous section stops there. And so I'm good. This is the section where we introduce Arlo. And this is Arlo as an adult, but sort of kind of flashes back after I stop at the when he's a child. Arlo Zakheim always got wind of things. He didn't have ESP exactly. He was simply more intuitive than other people. This helped him, he believed, in business and in life. He liked to have the maximum information about others while revealing the minimum information about himself. He listed his phone numbers as anonymous so that people wouldn't know who was calling. Sometimes, just for the kick of it, he would leave an automated email message. I don't feel like checking email today. I'll get back to you when the urge overtakes me. But all the while, he was secretly checking. 
You hate surprise, his mother told him once. Who could blame him? His own childhood had been so replete with surprise. The only constant was the surprise itself, starting with his parents' divorce when he was only eight months old. He was convinced he could remember his parents together, but his father told him that was impossible. Arlo didn't care what his father said. He'd spent his whole life trying to forget his father, even as he yearned for him from afar. And he considered the world, the word impossible a challenge. Impossible to hold your breath for as long as he'd held his as a baby, holding it until he turned blue. People spoke about iron wills, but scientists had yet to discover a will as strong as his. He had run two marathons 48 hours apart, 200 push-ups, fasting for days, lying in a hyperbaric chamber, extreme caving, tantric sex, dry orgasm. He didn't care what his father said. He remembered his parents together, recalled his father saying, well, good goddamn. His father who never cursed, who referred to it as cussing, who called dog shit, dog dirt. Gives you a great sense of Arlo. And it also, you know, I read somewhere where, where Janet Maslin described your, your writing as uh, that you write with an absence of showiness, which I think is a really high compliment. I assume that books played a pretty big role in your life at home as well. They absolutely did. You know, so I grew up on the Upper West Side in Morningside Heights back in the days when, for those of you who know New York City, there was a really meaningful aesthetic and cultural difference between the Upper West Side and the Upper East Side. That there's still a difference, but that difference is unfortunately more nuanced than it used to be. So I grew up on the Upper West Side, on the old Upper West Side, but I went to school from K through 12 on the Upper East Side with kids who were, who came from families that were much wealthier and much less cerebral than my family. And I placed no judgments either on the question of wealth or cerebralness I'm just describing. Now this job is, our job is to describe, never to judge. I mean, I, I judge plenty in my real life, but I'm, I'm sitting here as a novelist and I'm just describing. But, so what I'll say is that, you know, I grew up with friends who had TVs in every room in their house. In my house, my apartment, we all, we all live in apartments, but um, I'm using house figuratively. In my house, um, we had one very small black and white TV that was kept in the closet and was brought out reluctantly for certain PBS specials. I always had a certain envy until I got older and knew better of sort of the nouveau riche Park Avenue lifestyle of my friends with their showers that had nozzles coming from both the top and the side. You know, and I, I lived in my, with my bereft single nozzled shower. Um, I eventually learned to know better, but you know, I was a kid and I was impressionable. But in any case, this does relate to books. So all my friends had multiple TVs. We had our, our one little faux TV. Um, but there were books in every room of our house. Um, whereas, you know, my friends had coffee table books at, at, at most, um, for the most part. Um, one day, in, I think it was sixth or seventh grade, one of our teachers, I don't even know why he did this, asked us to go home and count all the books 
in our apartment and come back and report. And I, mean, I just lapped the whole class. You know, I, mean, I had more than the rest of the class combined. And I, I just wasn't sure whether to be proud or embarrassed. I think I was a little bit of both. Like I think at core I was probably proud because I, I, I did in my own way already at that point value books. But I also, it was kind of embarrassing. You know, I think it was just like, why did I have so many books when no one else had any books at a time when you're at an age 13, when you're trying to fit in. But that, yeah, that's a long-winded way of saying that yeah, there are a lot of books in my apartment. And you can see now I've replicated it. So I'm all for that. When did that happen? So, yeah, you know, it's, it's really serendipitous that it came about. I, um, I kind of always wanted to be a writer, but I, it seemed as real to me as being a ballerina. You know, I just, it just didn't seem realistic. Um, I took a, I w took a more traditional academic path. In college, I studied political theory. And I was probably going to get a PhD in political theory, and I would have tried to become, you know, an academic. Um, and but before I did that, I, I so I grew up on the East Coast, and I was at Harvard for college, and I was moved out to Berkeley after I graduated from college, and I grew up in Morningside Heights. I was born in 1964. So my first memories, just, just about, was in 1968, being taken by my mother to the Greenhouse Nursery School and being stopped at the at College Walk and having to turn, turn back because we were stopped by the, the protest. It was my version of a snow day. And I think I grew up in the shadow of that and grew up kind of feeling like I'd sort of missed the 60s as I imagined them. And only a kid like me could feel like, well, if Columbia is great, then Berkeley was even better. And so I moved out to Berkeley after college, you know, with some job. I had a job at a magazine, um, but I didn't really know anyone in Berkeley. I didn't have a place to live. But I thought I was going to take off a couple of years before I went to get a PhD in political theory. And I worked for a magazine, a magazine called Tikkun um, in the Bay Area. And one of my many jobs at Tikkun was I was the first reader of fiction manuscripts. And I saw how horrible so many of them were. And I... I didn't necessarily think I could do any better, but I thought I found it inspiring. I thought if other people were willing to try and risk failure, I should be willing to try and risk failure too. So I started to write stories and eventually I went to Michigan and got my MFA. And I guess the rest is history, but it really grew out of being in the Bay Area. I started writing more as a critic. In other words, I naturally understood how to, what was working, what wasn't working in a story. I was naturally a teacher. I mean, I, I come from a family of teachers. Um, but I had to teach myself to become a more intuitive writer. That feels like an oxymoron in some way, to, to teach yourself to become more intuitive. But, you know, the late David Foster Wallace, you know, in addition to being a writer, also was a serious amateur tennis player. And he had an article years ago, the Times Magazine, New York Times Magazine had this um, sports section. Um, and he, he interviewed Roger Federer. And I believe it was in that context that he talked about you know, learned intuition, that you hit a tennis ball over and over and over again. And what you're doing, not instinctively, initially, you eventually do more instinctively. And that was what writing was for me, was I understood how to make it work, but I couldn't do it. I just had to practice and practice and practice. And eventually I figured out how to do it. But I do think that being in the Bay Area was very important to me. Think that I grew up with some pretty traditional ideas about what a nice Jewish boy does. And I'm not sure being a fiction writer 
was one of them. And you know, not, not that there aren't traditional people out in the Bay Area, but there was something about the culture of the Bay Area in the late 80s when I was there uh, that was freeing, that allowed me geographically and otherwise to escape my parents' expectations a little bit. And that was really, that was really what brought it about. And and you grew up you grew up in a in a pretty observant Jewish household. I did. So my paternal grandfather was a famous Orthodox rabbi, and to this day, my last name, in certain Orthodox circles, gives me a kind of entree, free meals, all sorts of things. <laughs> you know um, that my name my last name carries a certain way that's very hard to explain to people who are not immersed in that world, but you're gonna have to, to trust me on that. Um, my father's first language was Yiddish. He went to Yeshiva University. He, on a lark, because his roommate was applying to Harvard Law School, applied to Harvard Law School, went to Harvard Law School, put his way through Harvard, paid his way through Harvard Law School by teaching Hebrew school, remained observant, went to fight in World War II, the end of the war, 1944, he and a buddy of his from the battalion were unarmed. They came upon a band of about 50 armed Germans. My father did not know German, but his first language was Yiddish. And speaking what he called Teutonized, this is the end of the war, and it was clear the Germans were going to lose. Speaking what he called Teutonized Yiddish, he got the Germans to lay down their arms. Hmm. Came back to the U.S., clerk for Justice Frankfurter on the Supreme Court, was still observant, didn't travel on Shabbat, would secretly sleep on the justice's couch because he'd be working late Friday nights. Um, he was very private about his religion. He quoted Moses Mendelssohn, the father of Reformed Judaism, who said a Jew at home, a human being on the streets. My father was a Reformed Orthodox Jew. In other words, his aesthetic, his gestalt was reformed, but he remained orthodox. He led a very bifurcated life. When he was saying Kaddish for his father, he had a mincha, mincha is the afternoon service, he had a mincha minion at Columbia Law School so he could say Kaddish. I think many of his colleagues and certainly most of his students did not know that he was observant. So he, I mean, so Judaism was a very central part of his life and remained that a central part of his life to the day he died. My mother was more the Spence character, though she was not a red diaper baby and she was not, you know, sort of ideologically secular, but she grew up in a reformed Jewish home in the Grand Concourse. And she went to the Walden School, which was a progressive school with no walls between the classroom and everyone campaigned for Adelaide Stevenson. They thought we'd all be talking Esperanto. <laughs> so, you know, I grew up in a, in a very mixed home. It was a mixed marriage. And my mom did most of the compromising in the sense that she, you know, she kept a kosher kitchen and it was a Sabbath, largely Sabbath observing home, but she never really took to it the way I think my father would have liked her, liked her to take to it. I, I think she actually, I think, he, I, think he, I think he got a great deal in the sense that um, I think she was much more flexible than many people would have been. I grew up very steeped in Jewish tradition, and I'm still some version of observant. My brothers are more observant than I am, 
but I'm still some observe, some version of observant. And my wife, who is less observant than I am, but is a professor of Jewish studies at Barnard. She's chair of the religion department, and she she you know she writes she works in animal studies. She's writing about animals in the Talmud. So when my daughter, my older daughter, this is a longer answer than you wanted, but my older daughter um, is just about to graduate from high school and she is going to do a gap year in Portland, Oregon next year at a program called Tivnu, which means you, uh, the Hebrew for you shall build. Um, and um, it is a Jewish social justice program where they do, among other things, they build houses for the poor. And what's her favorite food? Bacon. So, you know, we live a life of contradictions and I, I may live more of a life of contradictions than most. Also, I mean, one thing that interests me about the Judaism in the book is that, you know, Prue has lost her, Prue has lost her religion and she misses it and she can't get it. I mean, she, you know, she goes back to synagogue when Spence is sick and she tries to say a blessing for him in shul, but she kind of can't do it. And I was really interested in that in like, and I think it's, just, it's true of a lot of people I know who kind of would like to be more religious than they are, or like to, or like to have that connection, take that solace, and they can't. Particularly after coming out of this last year, people are looking for a kind of solace, but at the same time, the kind of community that that gives, uh, the sense of community that's there as well, that so many people miss. You've been well published throughout your career, and what I, what I want to do is, you know, talk a little bit about someone that you acknowledge in the acknowledgments who's meant so much to so many of us, and he's no longer here, and that's Sonny Mehta. And talk a little bit about, you know, Sonny's role in, in your publishing career. Sonny was that unusual person who, um, who was able to both tend to the business side of things as a business person needs to do while also tending to books, understanding that this is not widgets we're dealing with, that he loved books, he valued books, he was involved in the process all the way through. And um, he's kind of a, a man of a different, a person of a different era. And he's certainly missed. And at the same time, I'd like to say that, you know, Reagan Arthur, who has taken over for Sonny, is doing an amazing job at Knopf um, and is bringing things that are new and that Sonny couldn't bring and just were in a different era. And so I, um, I feel really fortunate um, to have started. I mean, I've been with Knopf. I mean, I have Pantheon and Pantheon and Knopf are all under the the Knopf Group umbrella. Um, but I have been, for my last three books, except for, except for my first book, I've been under the Knopf umbrella. And to um, to have started under Sonny and to now be under Reagan is, you know. It's very exciting. It's, as a bookseller, as a bookseller to see what they publish is extremely exciting. And, and, and also now that Lisa Lucas is part of Pantheon. Who just came on a Pantheon and is doing incredible things there. Yeah. Um, so, um, yes, to be, um, I was talking about, talking about Reagan just because Reagan is in, is, in, uh, is in Sonny's old job. But, but oh, of Lisa course, of course. He's doing incredible things at Pantheon. And the history of Pantheon 
Yeah, we just lost Dan Frank, right? Just, well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm going to get choked up. But um, yes, Dan Frank just died way too young, way too soon. Um, and, um, you know, they, they call Pantheon Dantheon. And um, yes, there have been a lot of losses at the Knopf Group uh, in the last couple of years. What are you reading? I'm reading Peter Ho Davies's new novel. Um, I wrote it down because I thought I'm like, I got trouble with the title. Um, it's called A Lie Someone Told You About Yourself. It's an, you know, I love Peter O. Davies's work. It's a short novel. You know, in some ways, I kind of think of it as like the male version of um, Jenny Offal's Department of Speculation. It, um, it's a book about parenthood, although in this case, fatherhood. Her book was about motherhood and about writing and art. And I find it to be just a beautifully written and heartbreaking book. Um, I also re re recently finished uh, Life of the Mind by Christine Smallwood. It's a first novel, very sort of internal and voice driven, different kind of book from the kind of books that I usually gravitate toward. Um, but I really loved that novel. I, and I would say, it's not, I, I would say anything by Elizabeth Strout. I love, I think Liz Stroud is an incredible, I mean, I, I feel like that work, um, I just love her work and I feel like she, by, she's also an understated, get out of your way sort of writer. Um, and I, you know, I mean, I, the reason I wanna talk about Peter Davies and about Christine Smallwood is because those are books are not getting quite as much attention as some other books. But I mean, I will say that I, although these books have gotten a lot of attention, I, I've really liked Sally Rooney's books. Um, I think particularly Conversations with friends. I want everyone out there, if you're listening to this before June 29th, 2021, I'm really excited to hear you on our Books and Books virtual event. You'll be talking to Lily King, uh, someone that I've admired as well. Yeah, and I'm very anxious to hear that conversation with the two of you. I assume she will not ask you to summarize your book. <laughs> oh, she might. And you know what? I'll, I'll slip kinda, her that. I'll slip her that note. My publicist is texting me, so I want. Oh, I you have to go. Because I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to do a toast for the pub, today's pub date, and the whole team is waiting for me. Oh, will you so, give them all my best? I will. <laughs> <laughs>